I'm Aaron Hinkin. This is the Maryland Curiosity Bureau. My name is Robert Fisella. I have a 1900 Steinway that belonged to probably the greatest or one of the greatest pre-World War II pianists, Agi Yambor. And uh, my piano has been silent, and I would like to find a good pianist to come and play occasionally. It's interesting and ironic to me that you're not a player yourself. No, and it's probably the greatest mistake I ever made in my life was not being disciplined enough as a kid to study the piano. If I could do my life over, I think that's the one thing I would definitely do. I would give up medicine in a heartbeat to be a concert pianist. We are standing right next to this beautiful instrument. It's, you know, it looks like it belongs in a museum. It's obviously been beautifully refurbished, uh, thanks to you. I see on the side of this uh, piano there is a, uh, a bronze plaque with an engraving. I wonder if you might read that engraving for me. This piano belonged to Madame Aguillambor, finalist in the third international Chopin competition in 1937. Mr. Fasella, I'm going to find you someone to play this piano. That is my uh, promise to you. But first, I think there's another a question that deserves a, a much deeper answer, and that question is, who is Agi Yambor? That, that is a very good question. It deserves a proper answer, uh, because she was an uh, incredibly talented person who triumphed over tremendous adversity, tragedy, horrors that are unimaginable to us who played the piano like very few people in the world played the piano. What you're hearing right now is a recording of Agi Yambor playing at Carnegie Hall in 1949. This is Tim Prudente, reporter at the Baltimore Banner, and uh, as of recently, something of a scholar of Agi Yambor. He's just written a gorgeous deep dive article on her life and her music. And uh, Tim, it was you who originally came across Dr. Fasella, the man with Agi Yambor's piano. How did this instrument and this story end up on your radar? It started with this out of the blue online neighborhood post that my editor sent me and it just piqued my reporter's curiosity. Honestly, this post read like opening lines of a great short story. It said, quote, although I love music, I don't play and my Steinway is silent. If by chance anyone knows of a good pianist who would like to come over and practice or play or even do a nice soiree with guests, please let me know. I am only interested in classical music. No jazz, no pop, no ragtime, God forbid. How can you not want to know more about a story like that? Right? So I got in touch with Dr. Fasella, and he told me a beautiful story. And the very short version of it is that this famous pianist, Agi Yambor, had become a close friend to him later in her life. They kept her Steinway at his house, and she used to come over and they'd have these get-togethers with friends, and she'd play at the parties. Miss Yambor passed away in 1997, and Dr. Fasella ended up with her Steinway, with no one to play it. So he started inviting Peabody students to come over and play. But you know, time marches on, and now the last of those Peabody musician friends has moved away. Which brings us to the now silent Steinway. And the story of the incredible musician who originally played it. Tim, you cover a lot of, uh, shall we say, less than romantic beats in your uh, daily work as a banner reporter, politics, court cases, state's attorney's office. This story, though, this story just hits different. I think this story gave you a chance to 
exercise a certain writerly touch that uh, really makes it sparkle. I wonder if you might read a few lines from the beginning of this piece just to set the scene for us. Maybe there's a magic to the beautiful black Steinway. There was to Agi Yambor anyway. Her life was a journey from the greatest teachers of 1930s Berlin to the dance studios of Paris and the Budapest underground during the Nazi occupation. She survived to achieve a recording career in America, only to fade into obscurity and shut away the world like a hermit. Picture her rediscovered in the end. A woman who played duets with Albert Einstein and married a Hollywood star, giving house concerts in 1990s Baltimore. Her reputation shadowed by a question. Why did one of the world's preeminent Bach pianists give up the stage? Tim, you write that her story is a story of remarkable talent and tragedy and an indomitable spirit. And uh, it's a story you have pieced together from an old cardboard box that Robert Fisella had in his home. He entrusted you with this box. It was full of her old diaries and letters and photos and a memoir, a short memoir of her life during World War II. What was it like to open up this box and start to sift through what was in there? Well, it felt like an honor and a challenge, too. Here's what I can tell you. Agi Yambor was born in 1909 in Budapest, Hungary. Her mother was a Jewish piano teacher, and Agi grew up during a moment when Budapest was absolutely blossoming with art and music, and it became clear that Agi was a bona fide piano prodigy at a very young age. Right. You learned she was playing Mozart before she could even read. She trained in the Royal Academy. She debuted with a symphony orchestra when she was just like 11 or 12 years old. And then when she was a teenager, she went to Berlin and trained with the renowned pianist and conductor Edwin Fischer. And uh, is this really true? She played duets with Albert Einstein. True indeed. Violin, not Mr. Einstein's main gig, but he, he did like to play. Yeah, and in her archives, Agi Yambor gives him this gentle critique. She said, except for the wrong notes, I don't think he ever practiced. He was a very good violinist. Uh, he was definitely not as musically driven as his young accompanist. By all accounts, Agi Yambor was positively obsessed with the piano from the word go. This is a recording of her closest living relative. His name is Robert Schiller, and he's her nephew. My mother was Agi's sister. Mr. Schiller lives in Budapest, Hungary. He's lived in the same home there for 85 years now. I'm 88, so I was three years old when we moved in. So the very same room that I'm reaching you at is the same room where your aunt, Agi Yambor, would sit and play the piano. Yes, that's true. Mr. Schiller was still a boy when his aunt Agi moved away from Budapest, but Agi's mother, his grandma, lived in that house until her death. So he heard his share of stories about Aunt Agi's younger years. Apparently, Agi used to practice so incessantly on the piano in the house that it drove her sister crazy. Her sister asked their mother to close down the piano because Agi was unable to make a break with as a young woman, Agi Yambor studied and performed in Berlin. Then she spent some time playing jazz in a Paris dance studio. She got married in 1933 to a Jewish-Hungarian physicist and inventor by the name of Imre Patai. They had a son who died, tragically, not long after he was born. He was their only child. 
You learned that around the time of World War II, the couple moved to Holland. And Tim, you write that Augie was in the middle of giving a radio concert there when a guy ran on stage to say that German planes were overhead. So they fled the bombing. They went back to Budapest. But it was 1944 at this point, and German Nazi soldiers had occupied the city. So they basically went into hiding. Tim, let me ask you to read from your article about what happened next. Sure. The husband and wife crept from one apartment to another, relying on a network of artist friends and intellectuals, moving on when they aroused suspicions. Recruited by the resistance, they scattered nails in the streets to foil German tanks. They hid from Nazi search parties in the murderous Hungarian fascists of the Arrow Cross. They bribed the Gestapo, forged papers, and adopted disguises. Jambor wore roguish makeup and dyed her hair blonde to pass as a prostitute. Months went by with just the horrors of the war. Imre carried a bottle of potassium cyanide in case they were discovered. They waited out the daylight in dark, crowded cellars, the cold water around their ankles. Jambor would be haunted by the voice of a mother, shot and wounded by Nazis who sang to a baby. In her memoirs, she writes of celebrating her wedding anniversary with a hidden jar of honey, of body lice and sleeping on wooden planks and sharing a pail for a toilet, of starving and eating a horse shot in the streets. She would forever avoid me. You write from there, Tim, that, quote, for 50 days, the Russians and their allies laid siege to German-occupied Budapest. Bombs fell everywhere, her ears ringing. The war, she writes, ruined her pitch. Historians estimate that 38,000 civilians died in the city, most of them from starvation. The Germans abandoned the city in rubble, with the streets carpeted by mines. Now, they feared the violence of drunken Russian soldiers at night. The Russians put them to work. While washing clothes, she was approached by a soldier who asked her profession. He had played clarinet in the Leningrad Symphony Orchestra. Six months had passed since she played, but he found her a piano. She played a chacon by Bach for a few Russians, mostly farm boys, she writes. Some didn't know Bach, but it didn't matter. She played every night thereafter. The crowd grew to 50, then 100 soldiers. In the ruins of the city, she gave her coda to the war. Tim, what is amazing to me is that just two years later, two years after this moment, Aggie Yambor finds herself being celebrated at her American performance debut on a concert stage in Washington, D.C. Yeah, she and her husband made it to the U.S. after the war, but he died about a year and a half later. So Aggie Yambor found herself at a moment where she was rising to fame as a great pianist at the same time that she was a young, grieving widow. She played concerts in Baltimore and Philly and New York. Music critics adored her. She played for Harry Truman with the National Symphony Orchestra. She recorded five albums for Capitol Records in the 1950s, and then she was just sort of done with the limelight. She settled into life as a piano teacher at the Peabody Institute here in Baltimore, then later at Bryn Mawr College out in Pennsylvania. And this is around the time when Augie Yambor started to get visits from a relative of hers named Frances Pinter. What I remember is that she lived in a converted barn that had masses of books, masses of instruments, just all over the place. Ms. Pinter lives in England now, but she was a young college student in New York when she first took a road trip over to Pennsylvania and wandered into the world of this storied musician she'd heard about from her family. She'd been given to understand that Aggie Yambor was her great aunt. And as an impressionable young teenager, 
I met this zany woman who was so full of life. She was tiny. I don't think she was more than about five foot one or two, but she was a bundle of energy. We had great discussions. Nothing was off limits. And I could talk to her in a way I couldn't possibly talk to parents. That's when she came into my life in those very formative years. During those years, Ms. Pinter remembers she also got several chances to listen to her great aunt do what she did best, play the piano. It was very beautiful. She was uh, a very emotional player. You, you could feel the emotion coming through. It wasn't just about the technique, although her technique was obviously terrific. The last time Ms. Pinter saw Agi Yambor, the older relative entrusted her young confidant with a gift. It was a memoir she'd written about the year she'd spent in Budapest during World War II. It was typed up and she had written by hand, this is not for bedtime reading. A few years ago, Pinter had the memoir published under the title, Escaping Extermination. It is a descent into hell. Everything got worse. It just was so terrible, and then you think it can't get worse, and it got worse. Tim, this book, Escaping Extermination, this was the memoir you found in that cardboard box of mementos you got from Dr. Fasella, yep? It was. Yeah, that's where I found the source material for those accounts of her evading the Nazis and playing music for the Russian soldiers. But, you know, there's another memoir of sorts that Agi Yambor wrote about the war, a memoir that was not in that box. People think of Agi Yambor as a performer of Bach and Mozart and Chopin, but she composed an original piece of her own, a sonata that was almost lost to history. Right. This was a musical manuscript that was only discovered years later by an American concert pianist named Sarah Cahill. I first came across Agi Yambor's name when I was searching for scores by women and came across a listing for the Agiyambur Sonata. I had sort of heard her name before as a pianist, but I didn't really know anything about her. So I ordered the score without knowing anything about it, except that it said the sonata dedicated to the victims of Auschwitz. I started playing through it and was just astonished. You're tuned to the Maryland Curiosity Bureau. Coming up, we're going to listen to Sarah Cahill perform that sonata, and we'll hear the story of how Agi Yambor and her Steinway piano ended up back in Baltimore. More in a moment. There's something poetic about the fact that it was Sarah Cahill who discovered Agi Yambor's obscure original sonata. Back in the 1950s, music critics heaped praise on Yambor, much as they do today for Cahill. The New York Times calls Cahill a sterling pianist and an intrepid illuminator of the classical avant-garde. Yambor was best known for her performances of classic composers, but it turns out her own music was pretty experimental and cutting edge for its time. It was also virtually unknown to the world until Cahill found it. 
Nobody's played the sonata before except for her. I think she played it once at the Phillips Collection. But otherwise, it had never been played before. The piece is called Piano Sonata to the Victims of Auschwitz. Yambor wrote it shortly after World War II. Sarah Cahill performed it at a concert in San Francisco in 2021. It's a very powerful piece. It's a very intense piece. And it was clear that she had firsthand experience with this, the horrors and the tragedy of war. And in certain parts of the music, she had images in mind. Cahill has come to understand that certain parts of this piece represent the sounds of tanks rolling into Budapest. Other passages represent the sound of people fleeing. When Cahill plays this music, she hears violence and she hears warning. I mean, she writes this sonata and she's thinking about all that she's gone through. But to me, her story is also such a story of heroism and bravery and resilience. I mean, the idea that then after the war, when she finally makes it to the United States, that she revives her career in a way that I think very few people would be able to do to then start performing and recording for Capitol Records and, you know, putting out these amazing recordings of Bach and being an activist and, you know, fighting against McCarthyism, fighting against the Vietnam War, fighting in the civil rights movement and being a, you know, an activist and a feminist and a teacher. And the more I learn about her, the more I just adore her and hold her to my heart. Tim, when you hear that kind of testimony and praise from the likes of Sarah Cahill, I guess it kind of puts an exclamation point on the irony of what became of Aggie Yambor later in her life after she'd retired from teaching at Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania. Yeah, this is a chapter of Aggie's story that's not well documented, but really quite sad. One thing we do know from her diaries is that for all of her performances, she always battled with terrible stage fright. She had this nightmarish anxiety that her hands were going to seize up in the middle of a concert. It's worth remembering that Aggie had some profoundly horrible trauma during World War II. And then right after that, she found herself on stage in the U.S., playing concerts and being celebrated and recording records. And all of that is to say there's no way of knowing exactly how and when PTSD might have affected her. Yeah, and sometimes trauma waits until life slows down to take its toll, which leads us to this two-decade blank in the life story of Aggie Yambor. And it's a blank that could have stretched on to a bitter end if it weren't for the curiosity of a guy from Baltimore named Dr. Joseph Stevens. Dr. Stevens was a Johns Hopkins psychiatrist and a musician in his own right. And in the late 1980s, he happened across some obscure recordings of Aggie. He'd actually known of her from her time at Peabody, and he started to wonder, is she still alive? And this is where our story starts to come full circle. Dr. Joseph Stevens was a dear friend of Dr. Robert Fasella. The man who's got Aggie Yambor's piano in his home today. We're going to let Dr. Fasella pick up the story from here. He says his friend Joe tracked down Aggie Yambor's address in Pennsylvania. He went there, and what he found was a heavily medicated recluse 
suffering from major depression in a house full of garbage. She was living alone, bedridden. She basically was very lonely. She had a cat. Uh, and he decided to help her sell her house and with the proceeds rented an apartment on Bolton Hill where I lived and where Joe lived and um, moved her into the Beethoven apartments with her two pianos, the Steinway and she had a Yamaha. She was 80 years old when she arrived in Baltimore. She looked like a street person. Her hair was a mess. She was disheveled. Uh, she was already beginning to become somewhat demented, but she was very charming. Joe arranged it so that she was never alone, that he would have, he would give his patients assignments and he would have his patients walking over and spending an hour or two every afternoon or every evening with Augie. All of the friends chipped in. I went over, over almost every day and she would play for us. And then every now and then uh, he would actually have formal recitals where we would invite a number of people. But what was so amazing, Joe said, by looking at all of the reviews, she had played virtually every one of the major piano concerti, and she knew them. The amazing thing was she would sit down at the piano and she would say, uh, I'm going to play such and such a concerto. I'll play the Beethoven Fifth, the Emperor Concerto. And Joe would say, Augie, you haven't played that in 50 years. I, I can see here the last time you... No, no, I can play it. And she did. Now, she was, I don't know whether it was Alzheimer's or vascular dementia, we, 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 we don't know, but she was slipping. And what was amusing is she would play, but then she'd get stuck and play the same measures over and over and over. And we would just wait and then it'd click and she'd move on. <laughs> This is a 1996 home video of one of those evening soirees at Dr. Fasella's house. The VHS camera pans across the room. The guests are relaxed. Several bottles of wine are open on the dining room table. And then the camera cuts over to Aga Yambor playing her Steinway in the living room. You can't see her face. The camera's shooting from behind her. But what you do see is a silver-haired woman in a long dress sitting with a slightly hunched back, fingers fluttering over the piano keys. A lamp shines on the piano's music stand just over the keyboard, but the music stand is empty. She's playing from memory. This is her last recorded concert. She passed away a year later in 1997. One thing I find incredibly moving is that video that's online of her last concert. This is Sarah Cahill again, the pianist who performed Aggie's original Sonata in San Francisco. What's fascinating to Cahill about this video is that image of the empty music stand and what it implies. It's all memorized. And so, you know, I, apparently she was having, she had some dementia and some memory loss later in her life. But I mean, that's the way the mind works that you can have things deep in your memory from probably from childhood. I mean, she was playing pieces that she had learned when she was a child in Budapest. And here she was at the end of her life in her 80s playing them in Baltimore. And that is just fascinating that the, the music is the connective tissue through her entire life and all that she went through. You know, Tim, when I hear Sarah Cahill talk about music being the connective tissue of Aggie Yambor's life, I realize like, just how many different things music meant for her 
during different parts of her life. It was a childhood obsession. It was a point of pride. It was a ticket to travel the world. It was a way to survive the horrors of war and to remember lives lost. It was a livelihood and a path to fame. It was also at times a source of crippling anxiety. But really, importantly, it was a way to leave a lasting impression on the world. Yeah, and to reconnect with the world, a world that she had shrunk away from. I mean, her music, if you think about it, kind of saved her life, right? If it wasn't for her old recordings, she never would have been tracked down and found by Dr. Joseph Stevens. Yeah, she could have spent the final years of her life alone instead of in Baltimore, surrounded by friends who loved to hear her stories and her music. Which brings us back to Dr. Robert Fisella. And Agi Yambor's now silent Steinway piano. Right. I feel like we've made good on our promise to tell the story of Agiyambor, Tim, but admittedly, that was not Dr. Fisella's original question. It was not. I think we owe him another visit. I think we do. Robert Fisella, we are, uh, we're back at your home now with, uh, I must say, a much deepened appreciation of uh, the musician who played this Steinway piano that's in your living room. And I brought uh, a longtime friend of mine who just happens to be, among other things, a classically trained concert pianist i'd like you to meet uh my friend wendell patrick hello wendell hello it's wonderful to make your acquaintance Uh, i've heard a lot about this wonderful instrument uh and uh it's wonderful previous owner i'm originally a concert pianist and started playing at a very very young age and have had a long attachment to the classical piano repertoire and it's wonderful to have an opportunity to just be in the presence of such a beautiful instrument and it would be a pleasure to just play it just briefly. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, and I hope the instrument doesn't disappoint you. I've been negligent and have not had it tuned in a couple of years. I'm sure it will not disappoint. what it's like for you, Dr. Fasella, to hear this piano come alive again with music in your house. It must always be a special occasion when that happens. It is, and it makes me miss Aggie. Yeah, it, it, I, I think of her often. It's been an absolute pleasure to visit your home, to hear this piano being played. Uh, it's This treasure is obviously in, in good hands. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I, it, it, I can't tell you how pleased I am to do a small part in keeping Aggie's memory, keeping Aggie alive. That's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Maryland Curiosity Bureau, an original production of WYPR in partnership with the Baltimore Banner. Big thanks this week to my colleague Banner reporter Tim Prudente, whose story inspired this episode. You can find Tim's original story and some beautiful photos of Aggie Yambor's mementos and diary entries and, of course, her Steinway piano at thebaltimorebanner.com. Thanks also to my friend Wendell Patrick for taking an afternoon to pay a visit to Dr. Fasella's home and play that beautiful old instrument. Wendell, 
does all kinds of original music of his own. And you can find him at wendellpatrick.com. And uh, by the way, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can always leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you listen on, just a line or two. Your kind words really do go a long way toward helping other curious listeners find their way to this program. So thanks. I appreciate you. For the Maryland Curiosity Bureau, I'm Aaron Henkin. Thanks for listening, and we'll do it again next week. The Maryland Curiosity Bureau is made possible with grant support from the Peel Center for Baltimore History and Architecture, online at thepeelcenter.org.